Well, our text today is 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, the whole chapter, 2 Thessalonians 3. We come to the end of the letters of Paul to the Thessalonians today. 2 Thessalonians 3 and verse 1, finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you, and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men. For not all have faith, but the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord about you, that you are doing and will do the things that we command. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. Now we commend you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who's walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us because we were not idle when we were with you. Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of the genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. This is the word of the Lord. Let's ask the Lord for his help in hearing his word today. Our Lord God and Father, we, we need to hear your voice in these next several moment, moments. We, uh, we, we don't want to hear our own thoughts, but yours. So to that end, help us today to grasp what you would have us to see and hear in this word that is before us. And we thank you for it, and we pray you'd, we'd hear your voice in it even now. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, first I want to say uh, that as we look finally together at the letters to the Thessalonians in this third and last chapter of Second Thessalonians that we'll look at today. I want to say uh, that has been a joy for me to cover over these past many months. We got kind of interrupted in there, but we started this a little over a year ago. It's been a joy to see what we can see together in these two short letters and continue to share in the word and fellowship together around the truth of God's word. And that's what the church's business is, right? Is to have fellowship with one another around the word of God and the gospel and to encourage one another in these lives that the Lord has given us together, to keep pressing on in the word and gospel, and to seek to glorify our God with all of our lives in doing so. And what Paul does in this final chapter of this letter is exactly in keeping with those great aims of the church and the Christian life. He's finishing the letter. And, you know, one of the things some of us used to do back in the old days before the advent of email and text messaging was we used to write letters. Remember that? 
Um, and if you've ever written a letter that you're trying to sum up in just a few sentences at the end, if you've tried to wind it up by saying, listen, here's what I'm trying to say in a nutshell, then you'd know a little bit of what Paul experiences here as he chose the words that would wind up his correspondence, as far as we know, forever in this earthly life anyway, with, with the church that he founded and loved. He's trying to wind up his whole correspondence with them. And you see he's wrapping it up there in the first verse, starting with the word finally. Finally. Now, sometimes when Paul says finally, we know he doesn't really mean finally because he sometimes then goes on for a few more chapters after using the word finally. So sometimes finally is just a summing up of something in order to move on to the next thing. But here he really means finally. And if we could take these last several verses of this letter and summarize them to make them easier for us to grasp in the next several minutes, I think the gist of what Paul is saying here finally to these Thessalonians comes down to two words. To sum it all up, in a nutshell, he's saying finally, pray and obey. Pray in the first five verses and then obey from verse six to the end. Pray and obey. Of all Paul has said, he's now saying to them, with all you know, with all I've talked to you about, with everything we've packed into these couple of letters, pray and obey. First, the pray part. The first five verses. In verse one, he's asking them to pray regarding the word of the Lord. He's talking about his own ministry. He's saying, verse one, finally, brothers, pray for us. Pray for Paul and those with him. Pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you. What he's doing there is looking for, in others who now hear the word, he's looking for the same kind of response that they, the Thessalonians, had had. He's appealing to them to remember how they had said. If you, if you look back at the first letter to the Thessalonians in, in chapter 1, verse 6, he says back there that they received the gospel with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Right at the beginning in chapter 1, verse 6 of 1 Thessalonians, they received it with the joy of the Holy Spirit. And Paul wants them now to pray that it would be that way for others as they hear the gospel and hear the word. As, as they, these new people, hear and respond to the word of God, as they hear the life-changing gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, that these new hearers, these new hearts drawn to God, would receive the gospel with the joy of the Holy Spirit. And he particularly asked for two things to happen that they should pray for in verse 1. First, verse 1, that the word of the Lord may speed ahead. Well, that sounds kind of funny to us. He, he means this to be a picture of the progress of the word. The gospel advance happening quickly around the world. A dynamic advance of the word of God. The gospel preached boldly, and then those who are chosen to believe it, believing fervently, and then growing in that same gospel, in that same word. But then the second thing he asked for in verse 1 is not, not only that, that the, the word would speed ahead, but that the, the, the word of the Lord may be honored. He uses the word honored. And by honored, he means honored in the sense of what we see in our New Testament reading from Acts 13. When some who heard Paul preach as a result of hearing believed and put their faith and trust in Christ as their Savior, at verse 48 there in Acts 13, we heard Rachel read, and when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. That's how the word of the Lord is honored. 
in rejoicing and glorifying in that word. In fact, that's how the NIV, if you have an NIV, phrases it. It says that they were glad and honored the word of the Lord. In the middle of verse 48, and as many as were appointed, this is back in Acts 13 again, as many as were appointed to eternal life believed, and the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. That's from our New Testament reading. This is that same word speeding ahead in our verse here, spreading rapidly, the word being honored by being listened to and glorified in. So he's asking that the word would spread and be honored. He's also asking in verse 2, 2 Thessalonians 3, 2, for them to pray for him for protection as he preaches the gospel. He just acknowledges that in verse 2, and, and that we may be delivered, he says, from wicked and evil men, for not all have faith. If you notice something interesting there, he's not saying to pray for no suffering at all. He's not saying to pray for no opposition to the gospel at all. He's just asking for protection from wicked and evil men, those who have no faith, those who despise the faith and would seek not only to hinder the gospel, but perhaps harm servants who bring the gospel. And Paul says, pray we'd be protected from people like that that oppose us. So he's, he says that there'll, there'll be a, both a positive and a negative reaction. We know that. There'll be both a positive and negative reaction to the truth of the gospel message. And what he says here is, just pray that we'd be delivered from the negative one. Why? Well, so that he can keep on preaching it. So it can progress to those who will hear and believe. So now, that, now that he's asked for prayer about the progress of the gospel out there, he now turns in verse 3 to these Thessalonian believers and their need for protection. He says in verse 3, look at verse 3, but the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. So he's switching from asking for prayer for himself to talking about them. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. So he's acknowledging here that in addition to him encountering those who have no faith, you know, they too, the Thessalonians too, are surrounded by those who have no faith. We saw that it's a persecuted church, right? So they're surrounded by those wicked and evil men who have ill intent against those who not only preach the gospel, but those who have believed it and trusted Christ and want to live for him. So there's opposition. There's opposition and hostility to them too. Verse 3, but the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. But with them, like with us, they and we can have full assurance that we'll be kept by the Lord because our assurance is based on the faithfulness of the Lord. He, as we learned in chapter 2 last time, he is sovereign. He's sovereign over the forces of evil, over even the final man of evil. Uh, the, the man of lawlessness, the Antichrist we saw back in chapter 2. He's sovereign over him too. Remember there in chapter, chapter 2, verse 8, how quickly he, Jesus, defeats that evil one? Second Thessalonians 2, 8, just a chapter up from where we're at. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. If the Lord Jesus is that all-powerful over that kind of evil, he is certainly all-powerful over evil men who oppose the gospel and even over Satan himself, who may well be the one being referred to here at the end of verse 3 when it says the evil one in our verse 3 of chapter two, chapter 3. If we move ahead 
to verse 5, 2 Thessalonians 3, 5. Move ahead to verse 5 for a minute. We can see an amplification of Paul's desire for their protection in this, in this prayer for their hearts. Verse 5, he says, it's kind of a prayer here. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. He's already told these people that they've been loved by God and chosen by God from the beginning. We see that just back at, at chapter 2, verse 13. But now he prays that the Lord would direct their hearts to that very love of God that makes all that happen. And the reason he wants for that to be their focus is because of what he is also doing now in this fourth and fifth verse here, which is what, that he's now starting to turn toward the obey part of our passage that we'll look at in a minute. He's transitioning out of the pray part and moving into the obey in the fourth and fifth verse. Here in verse four, after he's prayed for an encouraged prayer for this protection for him and them, now he starts back toward this thing that, that he started earlier about the word of the Lord progressing, he's, that it would speed ahead in evangelism, like he had said in verse one. But, but, but now he turns to what it would do in the lives of Christ, Christians, in the, in the lives of those who have responded to the message of the gospel and evangelism. Look at verse, our verse four. And we have confidence in the Lord about you, he says, that you are doing and will do the things that we command. That you are doing and will do the things that we command. And, and, and why does he have confidence in the Lord about them? It's because of what he mentions at the end of verse five, the steadfastness of Christ. We heard about the steadfastness in our Old Testament reading from Psalm 119, verse 5. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Well, how are my ways steadfast in keeping the statutes of the Lord without the Lord? I need him. And he says at the end of verse 5, you need the steadfastness of Christ. The NIV uses the word perseverance, a perseverance of Christ. So not only his steadfastness, but that he persevered. Christ is the one who already persevered through suffering, who kept steadfast, kept persevering all the way to glory. So he provides the model for us to be steadfast in spite of whatever comes our way, for us to be steadfast, to persevere. He's also the one who keeps us going. And, and not only does Paul pray they'll keep going, but that they'll do that so that the word of the Lord, the power of the gospel will make progress, not just in evangelism, but make progress in their lives make progress in their lives, the word of the Lord embedded in our lives to have us progressing in the faith as the Lord has chosen us. That they who have heard Jesus is the only way to overcome the ruination of sin, to overcome the power of sin, that they need, we need Jesus. We need Jesus to forgive us our sins and, they, and that he accomplished for us, that, that he accomplished for us on the cross, that that Jesus is the Savior and Lord of all who will come to him and repent and believe, that they will experience the power of Christ overcoming in them such that the word will make and demonstrate progress in their lives. So just to sum this up, what's he really asking them to be praying for in this section? These first five verses, he's saying, pray for the progress of the word of the Lord in our lives, but also in the lives of those who have yet to hear. And the question for us is, do we do that? Do we do that? Do we pray for the progress of the word of the Lord? Do we do that automatically? Do we at least do it when asked to? Or are we indifferent to whether the gospel spreads and impacts our world or not? 
are we indifferent to whether the word impacts my life or not? No, no, we do well to pray for the advance of the gospel, for the spread of the word, so that everyone, like the Lord has allowed us to do, can hear and believe and trust in Christ for salvation from sin and unto eternal life with him. Well, that's what he has to say about praying. Now, what is, what, now let's look at what he has to say about obeying. And by obeying, we don't just mean blindly obeying a set of rules or reluctantly going along in obedience. What obey here is, what obey means here is, is to faithfully now, if you look at the gist of what goes on in the rest of the chapter, to faithfully now, now that we are in Christ, to throughout life, faithfully live out the full life in Christ that he has given us. And the way this is done in this passage is he uses a specific situation of an example of disobedience to the teaching of Scripture and how to deal with that within the setting of the Christian church. This is an example. This is an important example because this was impacting that particular church. He said it should be our prayer for one another that the word makes progress in our lives. And then he brings up an area he sees where it does not appear to be that everyone in the church is doing what has been taught. Not everyone is being steadfast. Not everyone is saying only Jesus. Not everyone is trying to focus on spreading the gospel and letting the gospel work in their lives. You see, as he begins in verse 6, what he says, verse 6, Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. So he's beginning now in this obeying part of his wrap-up with these Thessalonians. He's beginning to address something he already addressed with them. And that is the case of people who are idle, people who won't work and expect the Christian community to support them in their idleness. And we're talking here not about those who out of disability can't work to support themselves, but we're talking about those who out of sheer idleness won't work to support themselves. We know from places like Hebrews 13, 16, that we're not to neglect to do good and to share what we have with others in the church. We know from Proverbs 14, 21, blessed is he who is generous to the poor, right? We know from James 1, 27, that we're to take care of orphans and widows. So this is not about those who can't work to support themselves. It's about those who won't work to support themselves. And Paul is talking about believers here. He says in verse 6, Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who does this. And, and he says at the end of the discussion, if you skip ahead to verse 15 of such people, do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. So he's talking about brothers and sisters in Christ. You know, there's other things in the scriptures that he raises to the level of treat him like an unbeliever, right? But this, he's not saying that. He's saying these are brothers and sisters, and we've got some people not on board here. So he acknowledges that this is a problem in a fellowship of believers. He says, uses this term, keep away. He says, keep away from such a brother. And said another way in verse 14, he says, have nothing to do with them. You see that there? In verse 14, have nothing to do with them. Now, why does he say keep away and have nothing to do with these idle people that are idle? Well, first we need to understand what's happening here with the example Paul makes of himself in regard to work in verses 7 through 10. 
Actually, it starts with the end of verse six when he refers to whether or not they're walking in accord with the tradition that you received from us. That's kind of a setup. He says, make sure you're walking in accord with the tradition that you received from us and look for those who aren't doing that. So he's kind of setting that up so you kind of go, what, what tradition? What was this tradition? Part of that tradition is what he explains next, verse seven. Read verse seven. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us because we were not idle when we were with you. Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. Remember, Paul worked when he was with them, right? So that's what he's talking about here. Now in verse 10, look at this, verse 10. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. So Paul is saying that when I was with you, I went out of my way to make sure I wasn't a burden to you as a model of Christian living. And he did that, especially for them, the Lord knowing this would be a problem in that congregation. And he's appealing to that now. So that's the tradition, that's the tradition that he's talking about. He says uh, in, at the end of verse 6, in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. And then he says at the end of verse 10, if anyone's not willing to work, let him not eat. That's the tradition he's talking about. That saying, if anyone's not willing to work, let, let him not eat. That's what is behind Paul saying at the beginning to keep away from such people. Uh, what's, what's he saying? Why is he saying all this here? What's he saying here? He's saying the gospel should have such an impact on Christians that it should not happen that Christians disobey their Lord in this way. And if it does happen... It so impacts negatively their ability to credibly pass on the gospel that it's important enough to basically act in such a way with these erring brothers in keeping away from them so as to draw economic support away from them, to shame them, as the end of verse 14 says, such that they repent, see their error, repent and force themselves back into the labor market. It's that important for the sake of the gospel not to let such sin go on in a church. That's true all throughout the epistles, right? It's always, that's the whole point. It talks about adorning the gospel and things like that. We're to keep one another accountable for the sake of the credibility of the gospel. If we say Christ can change my life, but I show no evidence of a changed life, what kind of credibility is that? So that's what he's talking about here. And I think the implication here is that this kind of thing could apply to other situations. This is an example. But it could apply to other situations that arise in any church where sinful behavior on the part of fellow Christians so impacts the credibility of the gospel that the church is called upon, like, like it is here, to lovingly but firmly, and you see Paul's really direct, right? But to lovingly but firmly help others such that they will see where they are not following the scriptures and will repent and live in such a way that does credibly commend the gospel. And remember, it's probably likely as I think we brought up before, that these guys who aren't working, uh, this is a common theme throughout here, isn't it, in Thessalonians, that these guys who aren't working are acting on this theological stance. We've talked about this before, born out of a mistaken theology that since Jesus is going to return any minute now anyway, then why work, right? It's kind, of a, it's kind of a late 1970s, late great planet Earth thing, right? They just go up to the hill and wait for the Lord to come back. That's kind of what they were doing. It's a it's a stance born out of a mistaken theology. It's mistaken theology that Paul's trying to correct here. There's a good question for us there to ask ourselves. Is there anywhere where our theology 
is causing us to live in such a way as to negatively impact the credibility of the gospel. We could do that as individuals. We could do that as a whole church. But is there any way that that's going on? If the principle here is applicable, that's what we have to do with this, is take this and see it as an example for what it is, but then apply it. If it's applicable to somewhere beyond just the issue of working or idleness here, then we need to look for ways to apply this kind of thing in our own lives too. So I ask the question again, is there anywhere where our theology is causing us to live in such a way as to negatively impact the credibility of the gospel? One suggestion there is, it just comes to mind, if my theology is such that, well, whoever the Lord chooses is going to come to the Lord anyway, so I'm going to blow off my responsibility to preach the gospel, that's bad theology, right? The Lord is going to draw who he draws to himself. He's going to use the means of us preaching the gospel, but I can't take my theological stance and say, therefore, I stay home and never share with anyone. So it's that kind of thing. We need to be looking for ways where our theology, our, the, our theological stance has taken us in a different direction than what is intended with respect to preaching and teaching and adorning the gospel. So the idle Christians there in Thessalonica are encouraged instead in verse 11 and 12. And this is Paul speaking very frankly with them, right? Verse 11, for we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. And the implication is you're commanded to work and earn your own living by following an example spelled out back in verses 7 through 10 about loving each other by not being a burden to one another unduly. Now, remember, again, this is not about those who are legitimately disabled. It's about the word of the Lord showing uh, a demonstrable impact on the lives of us as believers. It's that important that the apostle has to call out those who are failing to live full Christian lives in this way and to encourage those who do obey, which is what he gets to next. He's getting now to the ones who do obey in verse 13. He says, as for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. Do not grow weary in doing good. Paul can say from what he lays out in verses 7 through 10 about doing good by working himself and not wanting to be a burden, that we too can benefit from doing the same sort of good that he's exemplified. And why do you think he says there in verse 13, do not grow weary in doing good? Because if you've lived for more than a minute, you know we can certainly grow weary in doing good, can't we? And this is especially true in the church where we have an adversary, the devil, who would just love to tear up the unity of the church around an issue like this. People growing weary and doing the good of adorning the reputation of the gospel by not being a burden, while other people seem dead set on being a burden. Paul says, don't let this kind of thing in the church stop the progress of the gospel. So that's what he's talking about. This whole thing, this whole chapter is summing everything up and talking about the spread of the gospel. Pray that the gospel will spread and obey such that the gospel can be commended to those to whom we preach it to. So now Paul has finished what he set out to do. In writing to these people, he's told them to pray and obey. He's encouraged them before that in their sufferings. He's corrected misunderstandings on the return of Jesus. We saw a couple of different misunderstandings about that. You'd think after all this that he packed into these, whatever, whatever it is, eight chapters altogether, you'd think he'd now just at the end of this letter say, sincerely, Paul. But that's not what he does. 
because he knows we cannot do any of this on our own. We can't do it on our own. So who does he appeal to in verse 16? Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. May the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. He appeals to the Lord of peace. Not only that, but he does it in a closing prayer, doesn't he? John Stott calls this a wish prayer, a wish prayer, but it is a prayer. And it's worth noting that this is now the fourth prayer in this little second Thessalonians letter. The other three were at chapter one, verse 11 and 12, chapter two, verse 16 and 17, and chapter three, verse five. And now here, four little prayers, but this one, may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. But this Lord of peace is the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who established peace through the cross. It's the power of that cross that saves us and sustains us because through it, Jesus didn't only come to say peace, he came to give peace, he came to be peace, didn't he? Isaiah 9, 6, he is the Prince of Peace. Ephesians 2.14, for he himself is our peace. Colossians 1.20, making peace by the blood of his cross. That's the kind of peace he's talking about. This is the peace that is needed when we have to deal with things that come up between believers like we see here in this passage. This is the peace needed in every circumstance of life, every circumstance, from life to death. That's why he says there in verse 16, may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. It covers everything. You know, in your Bibles, this verse 16 is kind of smoothed out because the Greek, in the Greek it actually reads, now may the Lord of the peace, has a definite article in it, and the peace, the Lord of the peace, not just kind of peace nebulously, but a particular peace. The peace speaks to that peace of having peace with God. That's the peace. The peace which comes from being reconciled to God by God's wrath being removed from in between us and God because of the cross of Christ. And we can live and die in that peace because he's made that way. And he's called us to the salvation that comes from that way. I like the way William Hendrickson describes this peace. He says, this peace is the reflection of God's smile in the heart of the believer who by sovereign grace has received the blessed assurance of this state of reconciliation. We're reconciled to God. That is peace. That is peace. Therefore, the very end of verse 16, the Lord be with you all. Uh, may, he, may he be with us all so we can know this peace. If you've not trusted Christ Jesus and what he has done, today is the day to do so. So you can have this peace with God and the Lord will be with you. And then in verse 17, Paul takes the pen in hand himself. This is really interesting. He's been dictating to someone else, but now in verse 17, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the genuine, this, this is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way I write. Why does he bother, why, why does he bother to say this? I don't know about you, I've always just kind of skipped past this. Well, what did he say back in chapter 2, verse 2? He mentioned there not to be alarmed by a letter seeming to be from us. So there could be forged letters. I don't want you to think, he says, that some false letter is from me. So here he gives the sign of authentication. 
my own handwriting. If the signatures don't match what you know to be mine, don't believe it's from me. Here's the way I always write. This is an apostle caring for those he loves by giving them a greeting in his own hand, the comfort of a signature to prove it's from him and so you can bank on it. This is God's word through the apostle to you. That's the point. And then he ends where he began, grace to you. He said at the beginning, back at the beginning of the letter, and now at the end, verse 18, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Well, how do we sum up these two letters to the Thessalonians? Uh, I appreciate the way the commentator D. Edmund Hebert points us to how, how valuable and practical these two little letters are. I'm searching for a way to say this to you, and Hebert said it best, so I'm just going to read it. Edmund Hebert says this, he says, in looking back over these two letters to the church at Thessalonica, one is, is, is deeply impressed, we're deeply impressed with their timeliness and imperishable value for believers today. They give us an illuminating and in some ways a surprising impression of certain phases of Christian faith and life 20 years after the death and resurrection of Christ. We're reminded anew that apostolic churches were not perfect churches but the transforming encounter of the members with the living Christ had produced a startling change in their lives and thinking. They had passed from death unto life and their living faith centered in Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord, whose return they eagerly expected. But this hope for the future, which they did not fully yet understand, produced some reactions that Paul found necessary to guide and correct. This eschatological concern caused Paul to give a strong emphasis to this hope in these epistles, rightly called the eschatological group among the Pauline writings. What the historian Philip Schaff said of the Pauline epistles is generally equally true of these two. He says they are epistles of the fleeting moment. They contain truths of infinite moment. They compress more ideas in fewer words than any other writings, human or divine. Accepting the Gospels, he says. They discuss the highest themes which can challenge an immortal mind, and all this before humble little societies of poor, uncultured artisans, freedmen, and slaves. And yet they are of more real and general value to the church than all the systems of theology ever invented. These are great little letters, my friends. May we take and benefit from reading, studying, and heeding the principles that we've seen in these two letters, written a couple thousand years ago, but as relevant to us now as they were to them then. May we honor God's word, his word to us, in First and Second Thessalonians. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we're grateful for what you're doing in your church, in your world, in our lives, for what you're doing that brings glory to your name. May we live the lives you've given us to your glory. May we pray and obey. Obey you above all else as we long for the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ in whose holy name we pray. Amen.